Hello everyone, I'm Miranda Bartos and this is the Big Q Podcast. Today, we are going to be a little bit topical, free speech. But first, let me introduce my guests for today's episode, Professor Peter Minowitz and SCAP Director Elena Boyle. Elena, who are you at SCU? So, my name is Elena Boyle. I am a senior here, psychobiology major, philosophy minor, and as you stated, I am also the director of SCAP this year. Professor Minowitz, who are you at SCU? I'm a professor in the political science department, and I've now been at Santa Clara over half of my life. Not a lot more than half, but more than half. The main field I teach is called political philosophy, so it's very close in terms of topic to what we'll be discussing. When I came to Santa Clara in 1985, the Cold War was still going strong, and there were no laptop computers or internet or even cell phones. And I'm also a Santa Clara parent. My son graduated a few years ago, so I relate to the place in multiple ways. Nice. Very nice. All right, so let's just uh, jump in. First, I want to establish a sort of baseline, if we can. So I'll ask, uh, what do we use as criteria for deciding what counts as hate speech versus free speech? Like, can we draw a line morally? So I gave some thought to this, and it's an issue that's been on the table for a, a long time. So I think the obvious starting point is that we'll never be able to formulate, no one will be able to formulate a perfect distinction. But that doesn't in any way make it less urgent for us to attempt to make this distinction. And I would say that just thinking about it and discussing it and trying to formulate good, great policies is, is valuable in, in and of itself. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. Um, I think there's a lot of gray area. I mean, I think the reason why you're bringing up this topic is because there's so much gray area. Um, and I guess what sort of forms my basis of understanding for hate speech versus free speech is from a couple ethics bowl cases that I participated in last year. I was on the ethics bowl team um, through SCU, and one of the cases that we worked on was the uh, the incidents of people refusing to make cakes for same-sex couples um, because they did not support the new marriage equality, and they felt that it was within their beliefs that they could not make these cakes because while they weren't going to actually stop the marriages themselves, they didn't want to participate in them. Um, so that was something that really made me think a lot about this hate speech versus free speech, and that's kind of you know getting into action as well. Um, but ultimately what, what I started thinking of it as is whether it's an expression of your own identity or a attack on someone else's identity. Um, and I would argue that hate speech requires an attack on a, a group other than your own or an identity. Um, and free speech is just an expression of your own identity or a group that you belong to without um, attacking another's. So where did your ethics bowl team come down on that decision, like the cake one? Yeah, so with that case, we did make the decision that the bakers were required to make the cakes for the same-sex couples and that 
if they so much didn't want to make gay cakes, then they could be not a cake baker. Um, there are plenty of other jobs that you don't have to interact with the public as intensely. And then the kind of counterpoint to that was what if someone asked to make a swastika cake? Would that be um, considered a uh, something that that the baker could refuse. And for us, we decided that that was crossing the line into hate speech because that swastika is attacking Jews, whereas asking for a cake with, you know, just expressing your own identity is not an attack on another person's. Yeah, the identity angle is, is very interesting. I think it's a factor. I wouldn't want to make it necessarily the factor, however. And, and even the cake example illustrates some of the challenges. So the swastika or a, a noose and lynching or something like that does convey direct hostility, not just hostility or feeling, but there's an implication of horrendous action that has gone on, respectively, lynchings and genocide and... and other other forms of, of persecution, so so the but the the people who don't want to bake the cake, yes, the the people wanting the cake aren't insulting any anybody at all, but it's not a question of whether the bakers would s serve say, gay gay people because those bakers had no objection to it. They just seem to have felt that to, to bake a cake which honors this violates not just a part of their identity but their religion, and that makes it a more complicated issue since our Constitution protects free exercise of religion, and this issue you know, comes up in all sorts of contexts. So if you think right. you're offending God by doing something, that, that might seem to be a reason not, not to do it. And again, they're not making the cake. It makes it inconvenient. I'm not necessarily agreeing with this, the bakers in this case. So the, the people wanting the cake just go to some some other some other baker who who can do it. They're not saying there shouldn't be weddings. I mean, they they oppose it, or that no baker should do it. It's just they personally don't want to physically form it, which is which is getting toward their identity. Mm -hmm. But I would argue that if you take that um, that case to the extreme, then what if in a you know a certain area of the United States, there are no bakers that are okay with making a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. And so that kind of line of, well, personally, I'm not going to make it, but I'm okay with other bakers making it. Well, what if you're in a very conservative district where there might not be any cakes to make it? And then is that allowing someone to fully express their identity as a part of the LGBTQ community if they can't um, receive any of those products. No, absolutely. That, that's a great point. And not just express their identity, but do something they're legally allowed to do, which is, yeah. which is get married. Purchasing a cake, yeah, get married. And, and yeah. have the cake design. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is all an excellent point of how like you can draw a line maybe on one thing, but as soon as you expand it out, it becomes more and more complicated. Yeah. Definitely. So in terms of the, the non-identity non framework, I was found myself thinking about what Supreme Court in the past has done regarding pornography and obscenity. So yes, there's freedom of speech protected by the Constitution, but in the past this wouldn't necessarily protect sexual novels, even ones that today seem very mild, like James Joyce's uh, Ulysses or D.H. Lawrence, Lady Chatterley's lover. But with the pornography explosion we have now, 
I'm guessing people are, are more sympathetic with the notion that the prospect, the possibility that some restrictions can be legally implemented. And what the court adopted for a while in a 1957 case called Roth versus United States, one of the things that would constitute obscenity that therefore could be banned under some circumstances would be highly sexualized material. That's not a quote. That is, quote, utterly without redeeming social importance. So there's no serious issue being discussed. It's just indulgent of, of crude sexuality, something like that. So the parallel that occurred to me for distinguishing hate speech from other forms of speech that might be provocative, that would be, I think, especially relevant on a college campus, is d does the person making the statements have a serious interest in advancing an argument or illuminating an issue. So this isn't going to settle all the questions, but so much of the things, so many of the things we find objectionable do not qualify. They're not arguments. They're not trying to illuminate. They're expressions of st stupid and vile forms of hatred and prejudice. So all the words you can think of, you might call someone that you disagree with. You might say, I think that's a bad argument. Now we're getting back to your identity point. But if I say you're an idiot, maybe that's okay for making that argument. But if I use a four-letter word or a racial sexual epithet of some sort, then I think you've clearly crossed the line, that sort of stuff people shouldn't do, and there maybe should be disciplinary consequences, not jail in most cases. Right. Well, that's an excellent point because the next thing I was going to ask is, is like progressive discussion possible if people feel uncomfortable expressing opinions that are unpopular for fear of retribution or exclusion? Like, should you choose not to say something because it might offend someone or are people too easily offended? Um, yeah, well, I think this is a, a really good question, especially just within SCAP, um, you know, as a SCAP director, one of my main jobs is facilitating discussions with all of our staff. And um, in general, we're a pretty progressive bunch. Um, and it's, uh, I think going along with that, there's a lot of being very careful not to offend people and to respect all identities and acknowledge our privilege in our discussions and not to, um, you know, not, we, we have a, a saying that we acknowledge our intentions and our impact. So even if you say something that you think may be just furthering an issue and expressing a viewpoint, if it does indeed in offend someone, then you have to own that impact. Now, I don't think that has to mean you can't still say those things. Um, I just think you have to acknowledge that they may hurt someone. I think in order to progress on a lot of topics, you do need to have differing viewpoints. And I think completely tiptoeing around issues with, without saying anything that could be the slightest bit offensive does hinder that a little bit. Um, however, I don't think that should by any means be a a free free for all in terms of being able to say everything that you're thinking when a lot of those things are ignorant and not and without basis um, 
one of our guiding principles in SCAP is to first listen to people who have had um, type ex types of experiences that we're talking about. Um, to give an example, our past two weeks we were discussing cultural appropriation, and there were a lot of really interesting points of people trying to draw the line of, is this cultural appropriation, is this not? Like, but it was predominantly white people who were saying like, oh, I, you know, I don't think this really is going to offend people. And I think taking a step back from that, it's like if you are a white person, you have the privilege of not having had to think about how cultural appropriation may affect you. And so I think it's the responsibility of people in the discussion to first listen to people who have actually had those experiences and and understand how they may feel um, because you're not really speaking from a point of personal knowledge when you're a white person talking about per cultural appropriation. Um, so kind of bringing that to a wider scale, I, I think it is okay to, to talk about, okay and even productive to talk about controversial issues and bring up viewpoints that are not widely accepted. I think that is how we progress things. But I think in that context, it's first the responsibility of every person to educate themselves and really be aware of of who else is in the conversation and who they might not be listening to. Yeah, the, I agree with almost everything you said. The cultural appropriation angle is one I sort of thought of differently as I was getting ready for this discussion trying to compare it to other things you you might say or write that would offend people. So on a university campus, other things equal, I would say wearing certain types of costumes is valuable, but that's a less important freedom than, for example, the freedom to be able to criticize affirmative action or complain about illegal immigration, even to use the phrase illegal immigration, because those are serious ideas, they may make certain people uncomfortable because of their identities, but they're clearly intended to advance real issues that we as a society need to address. Picking your Halloween costume, it's fun, it's creative, it's artistic. We don't want to be too harsh about all that stuff, but that's a lesser compromise. If And again, it pays to listen to the people who actually are offended. So, so, and that goes back in a way to the pornography issue and an obscenity issue. Is it things that are related to advancing knowledge and promoting justice and making society better, more free, more fair? We have to give people a lot of slack to make arguments, provided they're not swearing, not screaming, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it occurred to me also while Elena was speaking, We've almost now got the worst of both worlds. On the one hand, the climate on college campuses can be so restrictive that certain debates are foreclosed, and you expressed a worry about that in connection with SCAP. On the other hand, we, <clears throat> we still have raving idiots, in my opinion, who cuss and sexually assault, and the Harvard soccer team, I don't know if you followed this, posting on a publicly accessible document these you know, really crude sexualized comments about members of the women's soccer team. This was the, mm -hmm. the men's soccer team. We still have people using the N-word in anger, calling each other hideous things. At the same time that we, we are also, on certain issues, tiptoeing around, being afraid to, something might count as a microaggression, say. I think um, that's a 
very valid argument. And I, I noticed that you are bringing up cussing and sexual assault and those sorts of things. But those, I feel like, are generally widely recognized as a bad thing to do. I mean, cussing in a in an in a attacking way. I mean, right. plenty of college students use a lot of swear words and that is not generally viewed as hate speech, but I think the fact that you're focusing on those sorts of things is failing to recognize that so much of the hate speech is targeting certain minority groups. I just think talking about those issues in a polarized manner without the input of people who actually have knowledge or personal experience about those issues can be very destructive. Um, I think having an open dialogue where people can say, yeah, this is why I don't agree with people immigrating in without documents and other people can say, no, this is why I agree with this. I think that is totally fine. However, I think having a, a very polarized group just talking about why they hate illegal immigrants is hate speech. It's well, unproductive, yeah, if yeah. nothing else. Yeah, I mean, that fits in my original definition, just spewing insults at immigrants, legal or otherwise, or people based on their ethnicity and many other things. That, that to me, is, is objectionable and doesn't really raise difficult questions. And so what, by, by swearing, I was thinking part, a little bit of swear words, but I, I don't want to mention them. But the N word would be like one slurs. example. Slurs, yes. Really ugly slurs, uh, which are usually directed against minorities, you know, for, for, for obvious reasons. So yeah, thank you for, yeah. for coming, up with that, coming up with that term. But you, you were walking a fine line there. Someone who's female or of an ethnic minority does not necessarily have a better vantage point. They will, may have a, a unique vantage point that, cont that contributes, but someone else may have devoted their lives to studying it and may know all sorts of other things that the other, the targeted or the person with the so-called minority identity doesn't have. So we don't know that in advance. And so some of the things that have been said about microaggressions, uh, for example, which are circulated on college campuses and being discussed at, at Santa Clara and otherwise, to merely say you believe the most qualified person should get get the job, get a job. That, according to some of the major writings about microaggression, would itself count as a microaggression. And that, that's pretty inhibiting. It's not just saying the best person or the most qualified person should get the job, but merely saying, well, that's kind of what I think. That can be construed as a microaggression. So no one's going to be locked in jail or expelled from school for a microaggression. But it's, to me, a sign of the... One, one problem we're having, which is people being too sensitive, too easily offended, and discussion being chilled in a way that's ultimately not beneficial for, every, every, for anyone. When we talk about microaggressions, I think, I think you make a good point, but I think the idea of people being too sensitive to microaggressions ignores the lived experience of people who receive these microaggressions. Like if you are being constantly subtly insulted by people who don't necessarily realize they're doing it, you have no way to fight back. You have no way to like change that necessarily. And that takes a really big toll on people mentally and emotionally. And 
I feel like whether or not people are being too sensitive to microaggressions, it's still taking a toll. So if something is impacting people, we can't really ignore it if it's causing them distress on a daily level. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. And I, I feel like, you know, with the example that you gave of be, be saying that you believe the most qualified person should get the job, I think that, um, yeah, that shouldn't be a microaggression if we lived in a society where things were equal. But because we still live in a society where people of color and women and people of gender and sexual minorities are much less likely to get jobs and get paid, they are more likely to get paid less, we can't, uh, you know, that sort of statement is tied up with a lot of this other stuff. And people might not be realizing that when they're saying that, but it can still be offensive. Um, and like with Miranda said, to kind of throw a personal example in it too, I mean, I identify as part of the LGBTQ community and people constantly just, they're not, they're not meaning to, but say like, oh yeah, do you, do you have a boyfriend? Or um, like making comments about, like you said, like uh, having a... Um, Having a girl crush, something like that, is something that um, it's just a part of our language and not something that people would ever think of as a being an aggression. And it's never intended that way, um, but it still can hurt and make you feel on edge. And that shouldn't be the fault of the person who is receiving those comments. It shouldn't be their fault that they're offended by it. It should be that the person who said that thing should should be aware of what they said and of course accidents happen and it shouldn't be a, a huge deal but it should be a wake-up call for that person to to be more educated and be more careful about their language society as a whole needs to take on the mantle of this sort of thing it can't be pinpointed on the person who is offended or the person who has offended someone else like this shouldn't be a targeted you did something wrong like we as a society need to look as a whole at how our language impacts people. Yeah, I would um, say that people should express their having been offended. And that's a starting point of, of, a, of a discussion. And I, I actually do think that a lot of the things that qualify as or are regarded as microaggressions are things that we should be careful about and aware of and there are expressions we should avoid. And, uh, Miranda's described it very well. There can be a burden, and I guess you did you did too. If a certain person is constantly encountering these sorts of things, it's going to wear on them, and there's not really that much they can do in each individual situation. So more collective education can, can be very, very constructive, and I, I don't ob ob object to that. Yeah. So this idea that we're talking about with language, um, this goes really well with... I was going to ask, does intent count for anything? Well, I would say intent does matter if someone isn't trying to make a disparaging remark or insult anybody, but merely expressing an idea in what's normally considered polite language that gets them off the hook somewhat, but that doesn't mean that they should have said what they, what they said. And my education about microaggressions is, is valuable for that reason. I liked your other question about should we choose not to say something because it might offend someone or are people too easily offended? To me, 
both of these are obviously true. Yeah. Some people are too easily offended, and it may not be about anything to do with minority identity. If someone's going too slow in front of them on the freeway, only 70 and the speed limit 65, they often get homicidal about, about stuff like that. So we can't assume that merely being offended means that you are truly a victim and someone else has done something wrong or even that society has done something mm. wrong. But in, in an individual discussion or a group discussion of issues that people are offended by comments about, have you, you have a boyfriend or what we, you know, there's a million examples of this. Those are certainly, those are certainly relevant. And we should think all the time about not offending people unnecessarily, not being rude, not being disrespectful, not not making assumptions. And we all do it all the time. Yes, we always need to be attentive to the feelings and perspectives of, of others. But someone being offended doesn't necessarily mean that the person who's offended them has done something or said something wrong or that should be described as a microaggression. I would agree with that. I like, I like the point you made about that it's not always because of a minority identity, how some people are just very easily offended. I think that's a good point to keep in mind of the individual differences that go beyond even the subgroups that we're discussing. Um, and I would also echo what you said about the intention and the impact both being important. Um, however, I think in order for the intent to matter, it needs to be discussed with the person who was offended. Um, if, if there's someone holding some sign and someone else sees it and they're very offended by it, maybe this person's intention was completely lost in this sign, but they're never going to have a way to, to convey their intention in order to lessen the impact that it's had on that person. But if it's something like a microaggression that happens and someone, you know, says something to you and then you quickly say, oh, did you mean it that way? That kind of offended me. And then they're like, oh, no, 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 I didn't mean it that way at all. Like, that's just an expression, whatever. Then the impact can be lessened. So I would say that the important, the importance of the intention is to lessen the impact. So I was, I had said or implied that we're now experiencing the worst of both worlds. On the one hand, there's still pervasive slurs and obvious hate speech and all of that. That I think is a very serious problem. At the same time, I, I said I thought, especially on college campuses, conversations and investigations were being shortchanged too abruptly because of taboos against using certain language. So one we didn't discuss yet was the Black Lives Matter movement, which I basically support. I think police violence is a very serious problem, and I think related disadvantages in the African-American community in terms of wealth and segregated housing and education and drug use and all sorts of other things are very serious problems. But I, I object to several instances. One occurred at, Am, at Amherst College, and there are other examples where for some other group to say or some other person to say all lives matter or blue lives matter or unborn lives matter 
you don't necessarily have to agree with whoever says that, but I don't think that should be trashed and censored and punished in the way that real hate speech should. I think we're losing something by not having a a richer debate because the issues aren't the same, but there are points that connect them. I think that when groups like co-opt the like blank lives matter phrasing, that's drawing attention away from the Black Lives Matter cause. That's not to say that like you're in the wrong if you believe that unborn lives matter, but when you use that like hashtag you're taking away from the purpose for which it was originally intended. And you're negating the like pain and suffering of the people who stand with the Black Lives Matter movement by like trying to co-opt it and make it your own. I would completely agree with that. I also think the All Lives Matter movement needs to be looked at in a very specific way because that was grown out of people not liking the Black Lives Matter movement and thinking, no, we all matter, not just Black Lives Matter. However, it's basically pushing down the pain that people of color are experiencing on a greater degree because of police brutality and because of systemic injustices that are still going on. And this is just, has been a continual thing from slavery to Jim Crow laws to now, it's been a constant thing and this is finally a time when the communities of color are rising up and saying no black lives matter and for the white majority of the country to just quiet them and say no all lives matter I think that is completely an aggression um, now you mentioned it being criminalized and shut down or that sort of thing I don't think that has actually happened um, but I do think people saying all lives matter is extremely hurtful, extremely ignorant, and is demonstrating a greater need for education that people need to talk to uh, people of color who've been affected by police brutality or people of color who've just experienced prejudice. You know, I think. Um, I found it interesting that when you were talking about disadvantaged, um, you said disadvantaged like African-American communities and all the different things that contribute to the disadvantage and, you know, education and low SES and um, housing and all that sorts of things. But you didn't mention just prejudice. You know, I think people fail to recognize that one of the reasons that people of color are still in prisons more and are still always getting um shot by police more is because people are still prejudiced and the the speech that's diluting black lives matter into light all lives matter is just an example of that prejudice yeah so i, I agree with you that prejudice is important and i didn't mean to imply that it was it wasn't important but i, I would challenge you on on a couple of a couple of the things about ignorance and, and discounting and all of that i mean you two believe, and probably the vast majority of African Americans do believe that all lives matter. So it's one thing to say, and I don't object to the phrase Black Lives Matter or that being the name for the movement, and I'm happy to get up and say it. Black Lives Matter. And I do think it's more urgent to say that now than it is to say that white lives matter or that all lives matter. But if you say it's prejudiced or 
hate speech or whatever to say that all lives matter and it reflects ignorance, you're saying all lives don't matter. There are some lives that don't matter. So we have to be very careful with this. And the issue of drawing attention, yes, I wouldn't want to fraudulently, I think that would be wrong, and I don't know enough about hashtags to, to comment, but you shouldn't work your way into something with people thinking you're there to represent Black Lives Matter and have a completely different agenda. But an argument that all lives matter or unborn lives matter in connection with abortion, it's raising another issue, but it's not minimizing the issue. It's allowing and encouraging the two issues to be to be discussed together. And as far as the pain of the people who experience it, someone experiencing pain is not necessarily been treated unjustly. Rapists, for example, often have a sense of grievance. They feel they're entitled to please gratify themselves sexually on some some random person they 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 select. They feel pain. They feel they've been shafted. A lot of Trump supporters feel they've they're been treated unfairly and disrespected. That I would never stop someone from saying that. I'd like to pursue it with them. Why do they feel that way? But Someone who thinks that a million fetuses being aborted every year is a very grave moral crisis, and a lot of Catholics believe that, and not just Catholics. They have a serious point to make, and one can make the comparison between the problem of police brutality and whatever controversies exist about abortion. But I think that saying all lives matter does in fact minimize the Black Lives Matter movement. You're trying to ignore an issue by saying, no, 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 it's not just Black Lives, no, 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 it's okay. It's all lives, all lives matter. But like the problem at hand is that black people are being murdered by police officers. Not that all people are being murdered by police officers. The issue at hand is that like, yes, we have to recognize that black lives matter because that's what's going on right now. That's our current climate. Um, and I think to say all lives matter is an attempt to minimize that. But you, when you say, use the phrase, the problem at hand, I, I'm not sure you really are committed to that. There are many problems. Right. Well, This is a, one that I, I think we all agree deserves a, gr a great deal of attention. Police brutality is a grave problem. I don't dispute that. I do not object in any way to there being a movement called Black Lives Matter, and I support many of its aims, but where I depart is wanting to say that you can't even say all lives matter without being accused of being prejudiced or ignorant or, or, or bigoted. I'm not taking this personally. I don't feel offended that you're making this argument. Let's, let's, let's go for it. But some people might feel that way. And then these, these two women at, at Amherst uh, who put up some all lives matter posters trying to draw attention to problem of abortion in, at the end of Black Lives Matter Awareness Week in, last fall in, in Amherst, they were pilloried and abused. Uh, faculty members were de denouncing them. They kept their identities secret because they were so so afraid of retribution. And, and they were sympathetic to Black Lives Matter. They did not mean to say, well, that's trivial. The real problem is abortion. I think their position would be police brutality is a very serious problem and abortion is a very serious problem. And in a college campus, we need to be able to 
understand the power of all these views, and this is precisely the problem I was emphasizing from the start, where if we're too worried about offending people or disparaging their identities, we may impoverish ourselves and fail to be as broad-minded and knowledgeable as we want. But I think the very fact that you said that they put up those signs at the end of a Black Lives Matter week, like, proves that they were trying to co-opt the movement. Like, they were trying to use that language to draw attention to their own thing. I wouldn't dispute that. But that doesn't mean that they are dismissing or they're, they're going to derail the Black Lives Matter movement. I think a really important thing we're kind of ignoring here is context of all these phrases being used. I mean, I wouldn't... I, I personally am not a part of the pro-life movement, but I do support people being able to express that viewpoint. And I think if in another, in a, in a world where, or in a present day where Black Lives Matter was not a huge movement right now, then if they started a movement saying, you know, unborn lives matter, that would be their prerogative. But we're in a context where Black Lives Matter is a present movement, and to, to steal a part of that phrase and use it for your own is ignoring that struggle. And I think same thing, uh, I think earlier you said that if I'm saying um, all lives matter shouldn't be allowed to be said, then I'm saying all lives don't matter. And I would completely disagree with that and say that I'm just saying in this present day context, saying all lives matter is an aggression. Um, and of course all lives do matter. I mean, we all, we would all agree with that, right? <laughs> but you don't, you can't ignore the social, um, situation that we're currently in. And the fact that didn't, that saying all lives matter is going to be perceived as, as part of, um, the Black Lives Matter movement and as ignoring the, the greater suffering that people of color are facing. The context is crucial, and that's true in other other things too. The words that are apparently in some contexts genuinely respectful, if said in other contexts, can be sarcastic and insulting, yeah. the tone of voice, yeah. So I'm not going to go to a Black Lives Matter rally and hold up a sign, you know, to, to get in the way or to, to change the focus of, of the discussion. But of a group puts up posters that are that take abortion as a very serious problem. I, I think, well, okay, someone could complain that that's only a partial view and it's degrading, but I wouldn't say they've committed a, a microaggression or the disciplinary machinery of a university should be engaged engaged against them. And, and just incidentally, on the Black Lives Matter mo movements, one of the things I object to, I, not necessarily violently, is shutting down of freeways, shutting down of BART stations, traipsing through the Dartmouth Library, this happened last year, screaming Black Lives Matter when people are, are trying to study. You can defend that, but who gets the floor and who gets to silence other people is a, is a very difficult problem. And to say, to, to, to put such a blanket condemnation on someone who says all lives matter or unborn lives matter or blue lives matter because the police are targets, and there have been retaliations and, and shootings and killings in connection with all this. we got to be, be careful with that, especially at a university. So we had a great conversation here where, you know, the, the ideas go back and forth. But if one of us was then going to get called up to the, uh, the Office of Diversity Inclusion for denying that all lives matter or insisting that all lives matter, I mean, that would be, I think we, we might, we, we, the three of us at least would agree that would be ridiculous.
you know, we, this is something to discuss. I think that's a really good note to end on. Okay, so that is all the time we have for today. Uh, but I want to know what you listeners think. Can you personally draw a line in the sand? Do you agree or disagree with anything said here today? Let us know in comments, and we will check those out. So thank you to my guests for today, Professor Peter Minowitz and Elena Boyle. I'm Miranda Bartos, and this has been The Big Q Podcast. We'll be back next quarter with new episodes, so stay tuned for more of The Big Q Podcast. Thanks.